0: podcast we're talking about herpes with Terry Warren she's the founder of the Westover Heights clinic in Portland that specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of sexually transmitted infections and we're actually having a two-part conversation with Ms. Warren and in this first installment she helps us better understand the sometimes confusing subject of herpes diagnostics and it really is confusing because at Asher we hear from a lot of patients who have questions about herpes testing and diagnosis And we recently conducted a survey of 369 people who were diagnosed with genital herpes by a healthcare provider. And what we learned is that many of them are being diagnosed inaccurately. More than 26% of respondents in our survey said they were diagnosed with a visual exam alone. And in our conversation, Ms. Warren clarifies that a physical exam alone should never be the final diagnosis for anyone for a lot of reasons. She also covers the tests that can provide an accurate diagnosis and explains how they work. After the episode, you can learn more about herpes diagnosis and also the results of our herpes survey by going to our website, ashasexualhealth.org. I mentioned this will be a two-part conversation, so be sure to also take a lesson to the second installment where we discuss the emotional and relationship aspects of a genital herpes diagnosis. Now on to the episode. Welcome to this edition of the ASHA podcast. I'm Fred Wyant, Director of Communications with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. Herpes simplex virus is our topic today, HSV, and that really continues to be the main topic of interest leading people to contact ASHA and visit our websites, and it's it's been that way for a while. I mean, certainly, since we launched the Herpes Resource Center in the 1970s, if you can believe it. And we have a wealth of freely available herpes information on our website, ashasexualhealth.org, but we've also launched a specialty service called Ask the Experts, and it's available at AskExpertsNow.com. And what happens there is if people who want personalized responses about STD questions. They can interact with healthcare professionals who specialize in STD diagnosis, treatment, and counseling. Our resident HSV guru is Terry Warren, an adult nurse practitioner with graduate degrees in nursing and counseling, and she founded the Westover Heights Clinic in Portland, Oregon. And in addition to caring for countless patients, she's been involved in well over a hundred HSV research studies. So she knows her stuff, and we're going to talk with her. So Terry Warren, what a thrill to chat with you today! Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Fred. It's always good to talk to you.
0: Well, and I'll, I'll remind our general listeners, or just inform them, this is going to be a two-part. Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk with Mrs. Warren about HSV diagnostics. In part two, we're going to cover uh, emotional and relationship issues that frequently emerge when somebody's diagnosed, and uh, we know that's, that's a really huge piece for many folks, so just a note to look for that episode on the podcast page. All right, so let's dive into diagnostics, and I want to start by asking about the three options we most commonly discuss with, with herpes, Viral culture, serology or blood tests, and DNA tests. Let's start with the mainstay of clinical HSV diagnostics the viral culture that involves taking a swab from a suspected lesion, my bumper or sore. So, Ms. Warren, my understanding has always been if the culture is positive, well, then you pretty much have your answer. But talk about issues with false negative results when a patient maybe has genital HSV, but the culture tests doesn't detect it. I mean, how much of an issue is that?
1: Well, I think it's a significant issue. And I would say that we actually, I, w- I would like to sort of renumber your diagnostic techniques. So I think one is a swab test, two is a blood antibody test, and three is a physical exam. Okay. So let's start, if you don't mind Fred with the physical exam. Okay. <clears throat> so, so what we know is that what, when a clinician looks at somebody, and says by visual exam, you have herpes, they're wrong at least 20% of the time. So the study that revealed that was actually done in experienced STI clinicians. So if they're calling things incorrectly 20% of the time, you can imagine that people that don't specialize in sexual health issues are probably making that mistake more often. So we know, and the CDC says now, that a diagnosis of herpes needs to be made with a laboratory test. So physical exam, though it can perhaps guide what happens next, should never be the final uh, diagnosis for anyone. When I was in practice, I would tell people based on what I saw, this looks like it could be herpes to me, but I never told anyone based on that alone that they did have herpes always confirmed with a lab test. And one, I could be wrong. And two, you can't tell whether it's type one or type two by a visual diagnosis. And three, other things can actually look like herpes. I've had people come in with genital ulcerations that I would have sworn were herpes, Um, Mm -hmm. did the exam, touched the lesions, and it wasn't consistent with the way herpes normally feels, turned out to be a bad bacterial infection. So it's really important, I think, that we take that first category, a physical exam, and say it's a starting place. It should never be the final thing. Okay. So so then we'll move to swab tests. And in the swab test category, we have two possibilities. One is the viral culture that you mentioned, and two is the more up-to-date PCR or nucleic acid amplification test. Both are swab tests. Sometimes people get confused, and they'll write to me and say, My doctor did a PCR from my blood. That's not right. PCR, polymerase chain reaction, should be a swab test. And that's a DNA test, right? That's a DNA test. It actually looks for parts of the virus. And the new test, the PCR or nucleic acid amplification test, is about three to four times more sensitive than the viral culture. So in my mind... All clinicians should have by now moved to culture, I mean, moved from culture to DNA testing, uh, though not all have. So let's go, be clear DNA equals PCR equals nucleic acid amplification. So some people get mixed up with those initials, but they're all the same thing. They're looking for the genetic material of the herpes virus. And PCR, uh, I'm going to call it PCR. PCR is good. Um, for another reason, several reasons. One, it's far more sensitive. That is, it picks up far more cases of herpes than the viral culture. And one of the reasons for that is that it's far more stable. So it's, it's not influenced by transport. Like if you have a culture taken in your clinician's office and it doesn't get sent to the lab right away, it could be falsely negative because it wasn't handled correctly or it wasn't handled quickly enough. And as I mentioned, it picks up, uh, you can use it in many more stages of outbreak. So a culture really is best when you have a blister and you break that blister, you absorb the fluid into the swab, and that goes to the lab. But with PCR, you can use it even in the crusting stage and still recover a lot of virus. So it's better for that reason as well. It can be slightly more expensive if you are self-paying but insurance reimburses it at the same rate as culture. Do you have any other questions about swab testing, Fred, that you wanna ask me?
0: Yeah, so, and thank you for the way you just sort of laid that out and you reorder things you, to the physical exam because that that's very important because, yeah, because uh, symptoms can be very tricky with herpes, right? I mean, they can mimic a lot of things and even to a practice eye, as you were mentioning, it can be very confusing. So that's, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you for that. Um let yeah, me yeah. ask you about the swab test so one you know I I hadn't thought about the potential liability of culture being sort of on the back end lack of stability you know, the way it can be mishandled or even transported can impact And I always thought the issue was more on the front end, like if the lesions start healing, then maybe the test won't be quite as, quite as reliable. Uh, um, so that's the perspective I hadn't thought about. And just sort of extending from that, you mentioned that the PCR swab is just simply more sensitive. So, is that, is it, so are false negatives then? I'm assuming less of an issue with, with PCR compared to viral culture?
1: Yes, compared to viral culture, uh, compared to PCR, uh, viral culture has about a 70 to 75% uh, false negative rate. So you wow. can see that PCR picks up a lot more cases and is a far better test uh, than the culture. And I think that people who are wondering about this can actually tell their clinician. I don't want the traditional culture. I want the DNA slash PCR slash nucleic acid amplification test. And it's interesting because it, at least uh, in, uh, we were using Quest laboratories for years when our clinic was still open. And, and the, the tube that we use to collect the sample is exactly the same for culture and PCR. The only difference is what you ask for on the lab form. So it's not uh, it's not really a lot more complicated, at least for that large laboratory. It's just what you ask for on the laboratory form. And people can actually look up, I mean, the other day somebody asked me, what is the lab core code for PCR from the genital tract? So all I did was put in Google lab core code for HSV, PCR, genital, and it popped right up. So if you if you wonder about it, you can just look it up and then tell your clinician this is this is what I want. And sometimes uh, they'll push back. I mean, but yeah. sometimes they won't.
0: So you, you mentioned that not everybody is doing the PCR. So I'm curious, uh, is that becoming the standard uh, of, uh, standard of d- diagnostic care, or is that still something relatively, flu- re- relatively few clinicians are using? What's your sense about that?
1: I would say, I mean, we hadn't used culture for 15 years or 16 when we closed, but I would say that probably now maybe it's half and half. I think the clinicians just aren't aware of PCR and how much better it is. Um, and they just are used to using one thing. And and sometimes people, you know, I'll ask clinicians if I do a lecture, I'll say, so I would like to have a show of hands in the room of how many use each kind of test. So raise your hand if you use culture. A few people will raise their hands. Raise your hand if you use PCR. A few people will raise their hands. And then I'll say, raise your hand if you really don't know. And the majority of people raise their hand. So they're not asking really for something specific that they know about. They're just asking for a swab test. But here's the way to know if you don't know what you're doing. If you, as a patient, get your results back and it says HSV isolated, that is a culture. Herpes virus has been grown, and that's a culture. If it says HSV detected, that's the uh, DNA, PCR, nucleic right. acid amplification test. So that's how you know by what your result says, what test was done.
0: But it, what's the turnaround type with, 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 with either test, turnaround time with either test?
1: So the, the PCR is a couple of days. It can be as short as a day because the, the test itself just takes hours, um, maybe three or four hours. If that, the culture, often laboratories will let that go for a week to see if anything grows or sometimes even longer. I've heard of people waiting two weeks. So culture also takes a lot uh, longer to, now it can come back positive very quickly, but most labs will let it um, incubate for a longer period of time to make sure they're not missing any growth. Okay. So PCR comes back a lot faster.
0: And and I would imagine for somebody who has a lot of anxiety, waiting a week or more for a culture can just be nerve-wracking. So that's another advantage. To totally. The yeah.
1: Yes, it is. So, it's definitely a far superior diagnostic method.
0: Okay. So I was going to ask you next about testing without symptoms, and I was going to go then, of course, into blood tests, but before I do that, let me ask you, is there a role of PCR in an asymptomatic patient or not really outside of medical research studies?
1: Well, you raise the issue of medical research studies, so often let's elaborate on that. So often when we were looking for the efficacy or the effectiveness of a, let's say, a treatment, let's say an antiviral medicine, What we would do is to enroll subjects in a study and ask them to do the intervention, whether it's um, taking a medicine or a vaccine or whatever, do the intervention, and then swab their genitals daily, or maybe twice a day, or maybe even four times a day, depending upon the study, looking for the presence of virus. And so that's how we know that we can recover virus in asymptomatic people, because most days people don't have symptoms But we know that when we ask people to sort of keep a diary of their symptoms and no symptoms, that we can recover virus using PCR now um, on days when they have no symptoms at all. So when you say, is there a role for PCR in people that are asymptomatic? I would say not really in a practical point of view, although I have had some patients. I had a patient who did daily home swabbing on his own and paid for it for an entire year. Wow. Which was kind of wacky, but he just could not believe that he didn't have herpes. So he did it and he didn't have one day of viral shedding. So it can be used when people don't have symptoms. It can be used when people have very subtle symptoms and they're wondering if is, so they've been told you have herpes. Then they'll say, well, is this herpes or is that herpes? So they may want to have a swab done of something that they're unclear might be a symptom. So in that respect, perhaps, but generally speaking, in the asymptomatic person, You don't want to have somebody do a swab and say, oh, it's negative. You don't have herpes. That's not accurate. So then you'd want to move to the blood antibody testing.
0: Um, Okay. So in what circumstances should herpes antibody testing be used?
1: Well, this is a, a guideline from the Center for Disease Control, and I think this is a consensus that everybody can probably agree on. One would be if somebody has recurrent genital symptoms or kind of weird symptoms and they've had a negative swab test, but they still wonder if they have herpes, That then there's a good time to do it, especially if culture was a swab test. Another time would be that somebody has been told based on physical exam that they have herpes, but no lab testing has been done, and they don't have a recurrence pattern that's consistent with that. Then, then antibody testing should be done. Um, someone who is having sex with someone who has herpes and wants to know if they themselves got Um, infected would be good somebody with HIV infection uh, should know if they have herpes or not because the herpes can accelerate the HIV issue so uh, certainly screening of the general population is not recommended but in these cases and in the case of um, someone who's presenting for an STD evaluation particularly if they've had more than one partner those are the people that should be tested
0: so let's talk about that Um... Uh, I mean, what about this whole issue of type-specific HSV blood tests versus some older tests that may still be in use, although I'm not sure why they would be? I mean, these days you're pretty much going to get a really good herpes blood test, right? Or do you still need to kind of ask your clinician about that?
1: Well, you still need to be on top of it as a patient. So there are different kinds of blood antibody tests. You mentioned an old one that doesn't differentiate between type 1 and type 2. Those are very much still in practice. I have seen them come across um, my desk still, and people, the clinicians are still doing them, which is just ridiculous, but they still are. But that could be positive because as a child, you were infected with cold sores, even if you've never had any as an adult. It won't tell you whether you have type 1 versus type 2. So what you want is type-specific antibody testing. Mm. There are, there's another test out there called IgM, and in some disease states, this type of antibody, it's a type of antibody, comes up early in infections, and IgG comes up later. So in some infections, if the IgM is positive and the IgG is negative, that tells you it's a new infection because it came up first and the IgG isn't there yet. But in herpes, it's, the IgM is terrible. In my experience, 8 to 10 out of 8 to 9 out of 10 times when an IgM is positive, the IgG never becomes positive. So which means it's a false positive IgM. The Center for Disease Control is very clear in their guidelines that IgM should never be used. And yet clinicians continue to order it and tell people, "Not only do you have herpes, but you have brand new herpes." Which raises all sorts of issues in relationships.
0: Does it add? IgM
1: tests, yeah, yeah. So IgM (laughs) testing should be completely avoided. And if done, do not pay attention to it in particular. The problem is maybe one time out of 10, it is indicating a new infection. So then you have to go back and retest with IgG later. But in terms of the timing for IgG, it should not really be done. Uh, with any great accuracy until 12 weeks after a possible exposure. Now, you can certainly uh, do it right away. And in my practice, if people were concerned that they might have herpes from a recent exposure, we did a baseline antibody test, which means that the 12 weeks have not gone by. It's just like right away. We did that because if a person, let's say that a situation happens where um someone has sex with someone other than their regular partner and they want to know if they got infected instead of waiting 12 weeks to do the test. We did the baseline test because if it's positive right away, that means they don't have new infection. But if you wait to do your first test till 12 weeks later, you'll never know if it's positive, if it was old or new. So I think getting that baseline test is often helpful uh, because often it will be positive and people didn't know they were infected, but they will know that they didn't just get infected at that encounter. Do you know what I mean, Fred?
0: Yeah, I, that that makes sense. And I just want to summarize to make sure that I've got it, got it straight. So uh, the question to ask a clinician about blood testing is, are you using a type-specific test that finds IgG antibodies? That's the one that people want.
1: That's right. And, and if they say, we're going to, do IG, we're going to look for new infection, uh-huh. I would say, what do you mean? Are you going to do an IgM? And if they say yes, then say no. I, I don't want that. I, have, I know from the Center for Disease Control that it's inaccurate and it shouldn't be done. Sometimes people have to be really proactive about their health care, and sometimes it'll piss yeah. off their clinician. Right. But you really have to be in charge of your own health care and, and, and try to get what, what is the correct test. So now so now we're left with who, you know, in, under what circumstances um, would you want to do this? And I think that's kind of where the controversy about this test come in. There are things in the literature that say that this test has lots of false positives. So I'm going to give you some personal background on that. We, in our clinic included herpes antibody testing with every STI screen that we did. And the reason that we did that is that we believe that people who are asking for STI testing are asking for the range of things that they might have. Herpes is um, the most common thing that they would have. And if you leave it out and you don't tell people, they'll assume it was done. So they act upon that. And I think as a clinician, if you don't want to do this test for some reason, then you need to tell people, I'm doing a test for gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, HIV, hepatitis B, but I'm not doing a test for herpes (laughs) so that people at least know what's going on and they can get that on their own if they want to. In our practice, because we had so many patients, um, we kept information for seven years about all of the index values that came back. So an index value is something when you do a type-specific test, it comes back with a number, and that number could be uh, usually the cutoff for positive is 1.1. So it could be anything over 1.1. So it might be 52 or it might be 1.6. It could be anywhere in there. But in our experience, uh, and we kept this, record for seven years. It, it was about 800 people. We found that um, that most people either tested po- clearly positive or clearly negative. There has been research recently that people who test in the low positive range, that is 1.1 to 3.5, should be concerned and should get confirmatory testing. This is the CDC guideline that anyone who uh, gets an index value in that um, range needs to be confirmed by another test, perhaps Western Blot or BioKit. So we found over seven years that 5% of everyone who tested tested in that range 1.1 to 3.5. Sometimes it was closer to 6%. So somewhere between 5 and 6% every single year consistently. Half of those are false positives. So that means there's about a 3% false positive rate on this test. And I think it's important for people to know it's not huge. It's small. So I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, never do this test. That's just my opinion. Um, The Center for Disease Control says, in terms of screening for STIs, that herpes testing should be considered when someone is requesting a full STI screen. That's their wording. It should be considered. We considered it and added it. So I think it's um, people can, you know, individual clinicians can make that decision. But based on all of those numbers from our practice for so many years, we felt comfortable adding that to our STI screen. People could certainly say, I don't want it, but most people didn't. So um, it's important to think about timing, however, because antibody is something that you make in response to an infection. It's not something you get from someone else like viruses. Antibody is something that you produce and it takes a while to produce it. So after infection, we're talking about HSC2 here, three weeks after infection, About half the people that are going to be positive will be positive on this test by three weeks. By six weeks, 70%. And by 12 weeks, most of the people that are going to make antibody on these tests will have made antibody. So you need to time it correctly if you want greatest accuracy. Recently, we published a paper last year looking at how good these tests are, for screening people. Now screening is looking for infection when you really don't have any symptoms necessarily, which is different than testing, which is when someone has symptoms. So let's talk about the, the value of this test um, in screening. And I think that it really, it provides um, some reassurance for people and people want to know whether they have this or not. So, um, in my opinion, for someone seeking STI screening, it is a valuable tool. There are people who disagree with me. However, if you get a low index value, again, 1.1 to 3.5, you need confirmatory testing. And that is a CDC guideline. We use the herpes western blot at the University of Washington. And anyone can um, order that test from them. Some clinicians will say, that's an old test for HIV. Well, yes, it was a test for HIV, but it's a technique. It's not a test for a specific disease. So the herpes western blot is considered the gold standard test. Last year in this paper that we published, we found that when used for screening the IgG test compared to the western blot, missed 30% of type 1 infections and 8% of type 2 infections. And that was looking at over 700 people. So we, we know it's not as good for type 1. It's pretty good for type 2. But it does miss some cases compared to the gold standard Western blot. So I think, I think that the test um, isn't perfect. It's useful
0: and i want to revisit something just to summarize so it seems like from what you're saying a person has an igg test uh clinically the answers are not always black and white there's a there's a threshold where okay you have a pretty clear negative result we're not worried about it or on the other end yeah you've got a pretty clear positive result but there are a significant number of results that kind of in a murky indeterminate area so what you would think i referred i think you refer to as a low positive and when people are in that range, then there's a confirmatory test like the Western blot. You talked about also the bio kit that, that can be usually really sort of nail down that diagnosis. Is that, is that a fair, fair summary?
1: It is. I wouldn't say there's a considerable amount of people. There's about 5 to 6% of people who test will fall into that low positive range. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's a small, that means 95% of people, at least in our practice, over seven years, and it was consistent. Either tested you know negative, or high, or higher than
0: 3.5. Okay, very good. Thank you for elaborating on all of that. That's that's very helpful. Um,
1: I think it's also I think it's also important to note that if someone tests positive at greater than 3.5, generally all of those confirm. I have had some people lately who have tested 4.6. I had somebody 7.2 not confirmed by by Western blot. So if you have no symptoms, you still could be infected. But if your sexual history really doesn't fit with a positive and you get one, even if it's over 3.5, I think it's valuable uh, to confirm. If you are actually positive for HSV-2, even if you've never had a symptom, you should consider yourself both infected and infectious to others. So Sometimes I'll have a patient say, "Well, my doctor just told me I was exposed." You know, that's not how that works. It's not like with a pregnancy; you don't get exposed to semen and you're you're you know right. and you're pregnant. That's not how that works. You either are infected or you're not. So I would take the term of a positive being that you're exposed. I would take that out of the vocabulary. It's it's not true.
0: There you go. All right. Well, we're talking with nurse practitioner and HSV expert Terry Warren. Um, I really appreciate you for being so generous with your time in our diagnostics discussion, and I want to encourage all the listeners, again, to also check out Part 2 of this conversation where we're going to talk about the psychosocial aspects of herpes. And again, those wanting to connect with Ms. Warren and her colleagues can find them at askexpertsnow.com, and we'll link to that in the description of this episode on our podcast page. Uh, Ms. Warren, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, and it's great that you laid this out for us, so so thank you again for doing that.
1: You're welcome, Fred. Thank you.
0: And thanks to everyone who downloads and listens to this podcast. We'll have more to come, so check back with us frequently. We're online, of course, at ashasexualhealth.org, and you can follow us on Twitter, at InfoASHA. Um, you can also sign up on the website to get our ASHA update emails. And when we develop new resources like this conversation with Ms. Warren, uh, you'll be the first to know about it. So get in on that. Until next time, this is Fred Ryan for ASHA. So long, everybody.